This last lecture uh, will be about the ethics of stem cell research. And when I say ethics, I mean it very broadly. So we're not only going to talk about some of the big burning issues, like whether or not an embryo at two days is a person. We'll talk about that. But I'm going to lead you into what I believe are the next set of big issues in ethics, let's say law and policy for stem cell research. And these are the things that we're studying at Stanford that I'm personally taking some interest in. And you'll only get them here because we're the only place in the world that's doing them, as far as I know. So here we go for the, our last lecture. So in terms of ethics, I think it's always good to start with notions of creation because really these are some of the touch points for what we might call the embryonic stem cell debate. And one of those is, is the notion of, of uh, the creation as a religious concept. Another is the notion of creation of Dolly, the clone, uh, man-made creations. And then, of course, there's the, the uh, debate about whether or not biotechnology is good or bad and whether we should use it for regenerative medicine enhancements, human enhancements, or whether we should slow this process down and kind of take a deep breath before we lunge headlong into uh, making organs that we can swap in and out of people. So this is just, a, these are just a few of the big questions that are facing some of the, um, the results in embryonic stem cell research. And what I wanted to do today is go through four sections on this topic. First, go through some of the classical notions of personhood. These are philosophical questions uh, about embryos and embryonic stem cell research and talk about those both in terms of classic philosophy as I understand them. Again, I'm not a trained philosopher, but I'll do my best to explain uh, what I think about them. And then contrasting them to and comparing them to various religious views because the debate tends to kind of find this edge of philosophy and religion. And we'll talk a little bit about moral status. And by that I mean the moral status of the two to four day old embryo. In ethics, we often call this kind of tongue in cheek, what's in the dish? Is it a glob of cells? Is it a person? Is it something in between? And these arguments are at the center or have been really at the center of ethics pretty much since um, IVF came along and then have now been very much focused and concentrated on the embryonic stem cell research. And then lastly, I'm going to talk about research ethics. So let's talk about the first item, and that's the notions of personhood. And it's always helpful, I think, to frame the debate on two poles. And E.O. Wilson, famous developmental biologist, says this of the blastocyst that we've been talking about for the last five weeks. A newly fertilized egg a corpuscle one two hundredth of an inch in diameter is not a human being. It is a set of instructions set adrift into the cavity of the womb. Well, that's a pretty sparse statement as far as I'm concerned. But that's E.O. Wilson for you. 
if you've read anything by him. Charles Crothammer is an advisor to the president. He sits on the President's Commission on Bioethics. He's an MD, I believe, but he's a... He was a psychiatrist, and he's a, com a political commentator now. A very much a right-wing uh, type of person. You can find him sometimes on Meet the Press on Sunday mornings. I always run to my TV to see if Krauthammer is there, um, opining on one thing or another. But he says, and I, I've taken this, I believe, right out of a government document. Um, that was published by the commission he sits on, we will slowly and by increments have gone from stem cells to embryo farms to factories with fetuses hanging metaphorically on meat hooks waiting to be cut open and used by the already born. So I, I put these out there for you only to show you how polarized this discussion has become. And the hope is that after you leave the class that you'll find your comfort zone somewhere <laughs> along these polar opposites. And the best way to do that, I found, is to sit down with friends and family and even people that you disagree with and get their views and kind of gauge where you sit on this very interesting um, and controversial spectrum. So. Let's talk about some classical notions of personhood, or what it means to be a person. One of them is sentience, and sentience is defined as the capacity to feel pleasure or pain. So a sentient being would be humans. Animals would also be classified as sentients. Plants would not, although some might argue. I have a great aunt that believes that her plants um, have the capacity to feel pain when she snips them. But she started to feel that way only when she reached about 95. So. <laughs> then another, um, let's say, thing of, uh, that, that defines personhood is consciousness. And that's the experience of being a being. So we know we are human. We know we're people. We know when we look at others that are people, that they're people too. And even animals have some sense of being a being. And one of my favorite uh, writers, and now her name escapes me, Marianne, I'll, it'll come to me, talks about uh, penguinness. In other words, a penguin, when he or she is flopping on their belly down an ice floe, definitely knows that, the, that it's a penguin and it's doing the penguin thing. But in order to be sentient, that first kind of threshold, you've got to be conscious, right? Conscious, right? And that conscious individuals have interests. Now we're kind of getting into the human part of the equation. The desire for things and those sentient conscious beings, including animals, as you define them, have rights. They have the ability to pursue their desires, whether it's, you know, the pursuit of food or sex or happiness or joy or whatever. And that these things are essential elements of, of consciousness. Now, unconscious beings, those, say, uh, that have been conscious at one point but are no longer conscious, 
uh, would fall into categories such as people who have um, severe injuries, persistent vegetative states, PVS as it's called, or we might have periods of temporary unconscious or consciousness. Uh, I, that's a misspelling, temporary consciousness, where you're sleeping, for example. Conscious one moment, unconscious the next. And the, those are important in decisions in ethics, say, at the end of life, for example. What should we do with a person who will never be conscious but ha has been at one point? And do they have the same rights and interests as conscious people do? Pretty heavy questions, really. Now, there's also a connection to the soul, and it's very much a religious one, but I'll start with a more secular view. John Locke said in, uh, I don't remember exactly when he said this, but a, a person, Locke said, is a thinking, intelligent being that has a reason and reflection, that can consider itself as itself, remember being a being. The same think thinking thing in different times and places. I really like that last statement because now it's more than just kind of I'm a cat, I'm hungry. Now I'm a human, I've had a life, I've been a child, I've been a baby, I've had babies. I am the same person or the same thinking thing in, in different times and places. This comes into a very important part in the debate about personhood a little bit later on. The Vatican says, among other things, this is just one statement that they've issued, is that personhood is the union of a sperm and an egg, which imparts a soul. And this is a, uh, something that is called uh, in uh, Catholic literature, insolment. When you have fertilization, you have the creation of a soul. You so, always, sorry? Automatically. automatically, that's right. So what this means for the Vatican is that at fertilization you have a soul being imparted at that point that that entity is the same as a fully grown entity with a soul. They are the same. Gilbert Mylander is a um, Protestant theologian, conservative, uh, and I, I actually like his characterization of personhood. He says it's, you know, don't worry about all this other philosophy. To me, a person is simply someone who has a history. So now you've taken kind of the internal reflection out of personhood and turned it externally. So I know that some, someone, someone is good, a good thing to look at. Someone has had a history, whether it's a corpuscle floating, a set of instructions floating in the womb, or a fully... Uh, a fully grown person that's sitting across from you at a table. Each of those individuals, according to Melander, is sufficient for personhood. They both have histories. So this is pivotal to the embryonic stem cell debates and is especially pivotal to this notion of personhood as embryos. Um, and just to summarize all of this, when a beings are persons, they possess interests, rights, and very importantly, a protection from harm. This also goes for persons who, let's say, have lost 
uh, their consciousness. We protect people in hospitals and are in persistent vegetative states. And so as a result, they have value and they deserve our respect. And there's a Webster's definition for you. Uh, I, I like the second part better than the first, actually, and that's that uh, persons have a deference to a right, a privilege, or something considered to have certain rights or privileges. So we give deference to things we consider persons. Now, potential is another facet of the argument that is very much uh, at the center of this business. And I, I'll give you the three big bullet points on this. And that's that a fertilized egg has the potential to become a person. And if potentiality is sufficient for a full moral status, then we should treat every embryo like a person. So remember that instructions, the set of instructions for the Catholic point of view? That, set, that unique combination of genes has the potential going forward to become a fully actualized person. So the question that this raises, the potentiality argument raises, is the following. Is potential to become something the same as being that thing? I see some people going this way. <laughs> I see some people kind of circling. All right, well, let's see. Hold the thought on, on that potentiality. So there are a bunch of schools of philosophy that, that, uh, that, uh, that look at this moral status question. And those of you that have studied a little bit of philosophy in school or, or in uh, college will remember consequentialism and utilitarianism. I'm not going to describe them in detail for you other than to say that they're balancing acts and that consequentialism in, in terms of the calendar kind of came first and it's the moral consequences of someone's act determined by a balancing exercise. Good versus harm. And the right act, according to consequentialist thought, is the one that gives the best overall result. Sounds kind of mathematic, doesn't it? Well, it very much is a mathematical kind of balancing exercise. A variation on this theme was put forward by Jeremy Bentham and John Stuart Mill. They called it utilitarianism. And this was more specific, calculating the benefits or harms to persons or people and then adding them together. And a moral good is achieved when the benefits outweigh the harms. You've heard the phrase, the greatest good for the greatest number. That comes directly out of utilitarian thought. So utilitarianism is often used in the embryonic stem cell debate. In what way, can you think? Sorry? Pro. Pro? Yeah. yeah, but how would you use it? How would you use it, say, in an argument for a pro-embryonic stem cell? Yes, sir. That's exactly one very good uh, uh, example of a utilitarian calculus. So that the, 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 the good from the science you might learn from one embryo that would be destroyed vastly outweighs the harm that might come to that 
embryo, or perhaps the harm that society might suffer because the embryo was destroyed in some way. That's one good one. Can you think of others? There's a big one that was used for the Proposition 71 campaign, utilitarian all the way through. To reduce the long-term health care costs, and if you had therapies that can help reduce health care costs in sick populations that are real versus potential right. populations. So the comment was you could reduce long-term burdens on the healthcare system by investing up front in this. So three billion, what's $3 billion compared with $160 billion savings in healthcare costs down the road? That's a variation on what I'm after. It's not the core of it, though. Right. Right. So that one's a harder one, I think. And that the com the com the common the comment was rather that which balancing exercise do you use? Do you use the balancing exercise that would say, well, if we put three billion dollars into uh, a system that might improve um, the diet for all of Californians, we might get, if you did the calculation a greater hit for the buck than if we invested this three billion dollars and we know how early this research is and get zero ten years from now. And so that actually can act, work a little bit against an argument that might say stem cell, you know, put the three billion dollars and now the, the one I'm really looking for is the, the name of Proposition 71. Do you remember in 2005 what it was called? The Cures Initiative. So the proponents got out there and said, if you invest in this money or invest in this research now, the money will produce cures. It will relieve suffering. It will treat disease. So this is a very powerful utilitarian argument that the greatest good is all of us that are going to get old and lose our sight and get decrepit and have neurodegenerative disease and all the rest and get injured during our lives and that that investment is a pittance to the vast billions and millions of people that are headed towards some you know medically uh, necess a, 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 a necessary medical need later in life. Isn't that the argument that <clears throat> some pro-life Yes, so the, the comment was, isn't that the argument that some of the pro-life people were able to um, agree with this? And yes, that's, that's true. Especially those pro-life individuals that had people that were sick in their own family or were sick themselves. That's, that's kind of the, where this uh, tends to tip, is when you have illness in your own family. Yes, ma'am. That's right. That's right. 
So that's very good. The comment was that this is the New Frontiers, and actually I run a program called New Frontiers in Regenerative Medicine. And so we actually use that kind of thinking to, to, uh, to, uh, to talk about regenerative medicine because, you know, a lot of discoveries won't be regenerative medicine based that comes from this research. We may find something that has to do with infertility, right? And that's really the way that science has worked since we first began putting our big bucks into it after the, war, the Second World War, is that this corollary effect. You just never know what's going to happen. Was there a hand up? Oh, yes, sir. Sorry. That's right. Right. So why don't we spend the money on lifestyle changes, yeah, lifestyle. and then we don't have to spend all the money on fixing all the stupid stuff we've done during our lives? Like, I'm going to go home tonight and have a huge martini because the class <laughs> is over, and maybe I shouldn't be doing it. Yes. Yes, yes. Right. Right, right. Right. So for some diseases that are multifaceted or multifactorial, they are, the, the lifestyle changes are profound and very expensive. And behavior, quite frankly, is tough to change. Yeah. We know that from basic things like getting up in the morning and all the rest. We do. The, the, Americans, the, the Americans like their technology. And actually that's one, of the, that's one of the problems that we'll go into a little bit. There's a whole school of thought about too much technology. It has nothing to do with religion or the religious right or the Vatican. It's a whole set of philosophies based on technology. So let's go there. But first, Immanuel Kant, who says that we should act in certain ways. He's, you know, the, the top moral thinker, irrespective of our desires, put the desires aside, that we should have a hue to universal laws based on rational thought, cold, hard, rational thought, and we should never lie, cheat, or steal. And we should never treat persons exclusively as a means to an end. You've, of course, heard of this, right? So if we go back a couple of slides to the personhood thinking and we say that embryos are persons and we experiment on them, where does that fall in Kant's reasoning? Squarely right there as means to an end. So arguing at this point would argue, Kant might argue, no, no go. Uh, but Kant never really 
knew about embryos. <laughs> he was talking about people, right? So who knows what he would, would say. And, you know, the children and infants are deserving of protection and respect. We know that. But would he have said the same for embryos? He certainly didn't say it for animals. And if you read him, um, he wasn't that excited about women either. <laughs> so, you know, it all goes to the time, really. Now, I want to get to this point about the technology question. And I, I, I lump this perhaps unfairly uh, into a category called the brave new world. And one of the proponents of the brave new world is a philosopher at Chicago. His name is Leon Cass. Uh, Dr. Cass has a PhD in biochemistry, I think, left behind many, many years ago. But he was the chairman of the President's Commission, President Bush, Commission on Bioethics. He's a conservative thinker. He has been writing uh, about these issues for 40 years. He was one of the founders of the Hastings Center, a big bioethics uh, think tank. And you can find his writing in all of the Presidential Commission documents on the, the web. In fact, I give you the references and the, and the uh, web links in the back of my book. You can go there and order them. They're free. And you can get the whole set, four volumes. And much of this his thinking is written in these, in these tracks. And I'd really encourage you, if you're interested in this sort of uh, uh, type of topic, you, you should go get them. So here's, here's his, uh, I've distilled it kind of into a thought. We are repelled by the prospect of cloning human beings. Now he's talking about nuclear transfer. Um, and he calls it repugnance. Repugnance, here as elsewhere, revolts against the excesses of human willfulness, warning us not to transgress what is unspeakably profound. Shallow are the souls that have forgotten how to shudder. So when you read this, what kind of things are you pulling out of? Melodrama. It's very dramatic, yes. Anything else? Sorry? Well, yes, but I mean, he's using words like unspeakable and shudder and excesses and, and repugnance. And I think what Dr. Cass is getting at is that there is a gut reaction that we have, and he actually has called it the yuck factor, to certain things that we do that we're not morally certain about. And so he's... He's, he believes, and it's not just nuclear transfer now, it's also using embryos for research, causes in some, not all, but some people, a, a moral revulsion. And that that's enough. You don't have to make a rational argument. You don't need to list a utilitarian calculus. You don't need to sit across from someone and, and have a point-by-point -point rebuttal. You just simply know inside it's wrong, and therefore it's wrong. We shouldn't do it. That was true of uh, same-gender relationships. That was true. You name it. So that's not the ultimate test. Right. So that's a very good point, and that's that our notions of right or wrong or what's repugnant the change factor. the shutter factor change over time. And in fact, they change 
from culture to culture, depending on where you are. And so it's, it's very much a hard thing to pin down, and Cass has been criticized for the fact that it's a moving, his repugnance is a moving target. It's, I wonder what his position is on IVF. He's a, no. The, no IVF. The, no IVF. Okay, so at least he's consistent. Well, I should say, yeah, I, I, maybe I'm jumping the gun here a, a little bit, but he has been a critic of, of IVF, especially the tossing of embryos. As I say, because with that kind of a mindset, you would need to actually not only keep the embryos, you might say that the parents must actually conceive these children that are there. Well, that's, they have a right to be no, that's exactly right, and yeah. th this is why it, it connects so strongly with the the, the social conservatives yeah. is because you've heard of the snowflake babies. Who, anybody heard of snowflake babies? Okay, snowflake babies are, it's a group, go to the web, look them up. It's a, a group of um, advocates who say that all the embryos in freezers, snowflake babies, should be placed with parents and brought to term. So it's kind of putting the adoption paradigm inside the IVF they're clinic. They're, and they're souls, and that we should have a moral obligation to make sure that every embryo, even the ones that aren't Long -term viable. very viable, I mean, some of those in the freezers may not be viable. In fact, naturally, most embryos, when they do implant, aren't vi viable, up to 60%. I don't know what Leon Cass thinks about contraception. Did you get him on the phone? Well, we've actually we've had some conversations. <laughs> yeah. Now another person who is in this camp, although I wouldn't actually, uh, he he might actually uh, protest that I've listed him on the same slide, is Michael Sandel, and Michael Sandel and a group of others. Uh, are, are kind of more concerned about this biotech question. And again, it's this one-sided triumph of willfulness over giftedness, a dominion over reverence, of molding over beholding. I strongly encourage you to uh, look in the Atlantic Monthly's website, search for Michael Sandel, and find a very good article he wrote in 2004 on exactly this issue. Um, he's quite a, an amazing fellow. But his point is that, you know, humans ought to dial it back a bit on this, that we're moving too quickly. So those are some philosophy positions. Here, here are some basic r religious views. And again, I apologize, these are just distilled right down to the essence um, for you. The Vatican, in uh, their their official documents called the Donum Vitae, they state quite clearly that the embryo is a person. The conservative Protestant views that align with, uh, with the Vatican uh, say that the embryo should be protected at, at all costs, the weakest and least advantage of human beings. Remember Gilbert Mylander, I talked a little bit uh, earlier about. Uh, other philosophers say to be willing to kill for all one knows is a person, is the same as killing a person. This is an interesting twist on, on an argument that states that, simp that because we simply don't know about 
an embryo's person, personness or sold ensoulment, that we should simply not go there until we do know. Well, a metaphysical question will never be really known completely, but in this it's the, the do no harm kind of argument. Don't go there. If we're not sure, don't go there. Right, so the comment is that there's going to be some mischief that's going to go on no matter what we do. And in fact, looking back on history, there's been mischief all during science's march. And so uh, what do we do? Do we throttle down science and stop it completely? And so it not only goes to your point, but it also brings up another point that um, we stop our scientific knowledge and then stop our future thinking about disease and knowledge and stuff we use for, for other areas of science too. So this is very much a retreatist, going back to the, the uh, Brave New World, I believe, it's kind of a retreatist sort of view. It's like reeling into a very dark, to me, and pessimistic time. Middle Ages, I mean, it seems to me that we should, you know, maybe just go back to leeches and bleeding and other it's sorts like of things. You know, when the transfusion was first done, it was like, how could you do that? Right. Now it's but there are other Protestant views besides the one I've given. Um, Orthodox Christian Methodists say that the destructive human embryo research is a violation of human life. The Presbyterians say that it's okay. These are all official documents for research that may result in the restoring of health in those suffering from serious illness. Centrist Catholics, this is the majority of Catholics, not the Vatican, but they take very much a utilitarian view, proportionate reason. They tolerate a lesser evil to bring about a, a greater good. Yes? Uh, the idea or kind of the certain things can have both good and bad sides depending on how they're used. Reminded, I worked all my life in nuclear power. Right. And certainly nothing can be more destructive. Yes. Other hand beneficial. Right. So the comment was nuclear po power is a very, very close analog, I think, to some of the arguments that go on uh, to, to this. But there are other major religions that actually support this. So Judaism is, is the big one. Uh, Jewish religious law and the duty to save a life and heal. If you have the capacity to heal as a physician or a scientist, you must exercise that capacity. That's what you're put on earth for. Yes. To life. To life. Uh, and so embryonic stem cells must be used to treat people. Islam uh, is still kind of working this out. At least my research shows that they're only begun to contemplate the question of embryos and embryonic stem cell research. But they believe, at least in some of their documents, that ensoulment begins after early embryogenesis, uh, but embryos in IVF clinics may have some sanctity. Buddhism believes that cloning is actually recycling life. 
And if you transplant cells from some source into another person, they find another life in that person, and that can go on for as long as you can do it. It does. All right, so we're more than halfway th through. So I thought I would just kind of bring all of this together um, for you and, and construct a, an argument or a set of arguments that you might want to take back and, and think about. And what one half of this thinking would be that embryos are persons. Let's just take this as one side of it. And to believe this or to argue this, you have to say that development is continuous. Remember, we've talked about development as kind of this vast series of biological and cellular steps. So we were all embryos once, and that we are a seamless series of the same person. I'm the same person I was when I was 140 cell blastocyst. Remember Mylander's point that a person has a history, simply who, a who, it's, a, it's a, a thing that has a history. So when you know, a woman is pregnant, she has a knowledge or some sort of conscious understanding that there is something inside her. And we, as a society, often talk about the baby as it's being um, developed as a person. Although, I should say that when we have spontaneous abortions or when um, you know, the embryo doesn't implant, we don't afford that embryo the same sort of, um, uh, sort of cultural rituals we would a person who was born, lived, and then died. Although, in Japan, they do. In they fact, give it a burial. But in Europe, I have friends who won't even, they don't want showers, they don't want anything until the thing has arrived in case, I mean, up until the, you know, the due date. They don't want anything because it may not happen at certain control. Yeah. This may not be a person I want to be in a relationship with because yeah. it may not happen. I see. Interesting. Yeah. Very interesting. I think some oriental practices, we don't celebrate until the first birthday. Yeah. Right. And even... Yes. Yes. So the question is: Are this is another really good technology question? Our technology has—I don't want to use the word intruded, but it's probably a pretty good uh, way to put it. Um, earlier and earlier into pregnancy, so that we're learning more information about the developing um, embryo and then have some faced with some pretty profound decisions as as a result of it and those decisions go to kind of this issue well geez you know if i go through an abortion you know because i have this knowledge what's this person if it's a person um what what sort of things am i um uh my decisions are forgoing a life i think that's the best way to, to put it Denying that future life of some sort of happiness, perhaps, or we already talked about the Vatican's position. So when you use this as a as a position, then it's protect the embryo, right? If it's a person, so 
you remember Mylander's first, uh, I'm sorry, um, Krauthammer's first comment on that first slide? He's describing the slippery slope. We're going to go from this to this to this to depravity. And that's the worry. If we permit the destruction of blastocysts, it may lead to other immoral acts, such as da-da-da. Number two, it paves the way for unethical human enhancements. We shouldn't do, do it because people feel it's deeply wrong. Who's that? What's that? That's the Cassian view, right? The repu moral repugnance. And the potentiality argument might be you protect it because it's a potential person. Not because it is now, but potentially it will be. Now the two rebuttals to that, my mentor here at Stanford, his name was Ernley Young, bioethicist, used to be the chaplain of the church. He says, is the potentiality the same as actuality? He, he, he looked at me one day and said, you know, you and I are potentially dead, but it would be a mistake to call us dead until we are. So that's a very good kind of logical treatment of this potentiality argument. Mike uh, Gazaniga is also on the President's Commission. He's one of the minority views about going ahead with embryonic stem cell research, and he puts it this way. If Home Depot burns down, do the headlines the next day read, 46 homes burned down, or is it lumberyard burned down? You see the point he's making about potentiality and actuality? The trouble with potentiality, though, that I see is that where does potential become real? So is it when the heart starts beating and the fetus, and when the baby can survive out of the uterus, which keeps getting farther and farther earlier? Yeah. Is it when the baby's born, when the baby feels pain? Where does that line get crossed? That's right. So that, that's a, I think the potentiality argument actually cuts both ways. Yeah. You have to be careful when you venture out because you can, you can get a response from someone say, well, prove, prove it when, you know, pr when does it happen? And then on the other point, you can say, well, you never know. You know, you just, it doesn't matter. We're all the same person. It's an embryo as me. I am the embryo. Sounds like a Beatles tune. <laughs> Twenty-four weeks, sometimes even sooner. Third trimester. Right. Well, that's a the. That's right. The, so the the point I think is a good one, and that's about um, the abortion question, and that's something that's been very, tied very, very closely to the embryonic stem cell debate. In fact, some scholars call it the, the, uh, the, the embryo proxy or even the abortion proxy. So all of this gets woven very much in, into, uh, the same, into the same cloth. Let's take the other side. Embryos are not persons. So this, I'll just call this the developmental view. You can call it whatever you like. They lack sentience. So pleasure, pain. The neural streak, that first biological indentation that will signal the formation of the central nervous system is 10 days away. Now, neural streak does not equate to neural pathways or a neural system or sentience. 
It's just the first visual sign that developmental biologists have that now the cells are starting to go down that neural lineage I talked about on day two, on lecture two. Can we talk about a way, is it away from the blastocyst Yes, so these are, these, are, these are stages further on, 10 days. Remember blastocyst two to four? So this is 10 days away. Reflex activity from day zero is six weeks away. The first peripheral nerve signal is 11 weeks distant. True consciousness, as we sometimes describe it, being able to use language and the pronoun I, being aware of ourselves as a being, is a year distant, sometimes longer. Michael Sandel, again, sentient creatures make claims on us that non-sentient ones do not. Being capable of experience and consciousness makes higher claims still. Human life develops by degrees, some younger stage or earlier stage of development. That's a really good way of putting this, I think, developmental view. So there's a human relations view, too, that you might argue here, and that's that persons are understood to be a part of society. Embryos have not entered into society, contrary to Gilbert Mylander's view. Um, the embryo rescue thought experiment, this is a, something that's tossed out in our classes to students. I'll give it to you, it's kind of fun. If there was a clinic on fire, and in the clinic were 10 test tubes with embryos at four days, and two children, whom would you rescue if you went in? No contest. No contest. You'd rescue the children, right? So that's kind of a, a, a thought about how we view, in the normative sense, embryos. The Jewish tradition says that, like uh, up to 40 days or so, the embryos like water. And that goes way back into Jewish tradition. Um, the Kantian notions also can be flipped. And you can say, well, they apply to persons, not non-existent persons. Kant would say. Yet we respect those not exercising those capabilities such as infants and the permanently unconscious. Not to take everybody out of that category. So what I've given you is kind of the views and some of the arguments on both sides. And I, I do it, I try to be balanced at least in this part of the class um, so that you can look at these and think about them yourself and debate them. Um, and I'll tell you that it, you know, this, you, you guys self-select into this class. <laughs> you're, you're here because I think most of you probably support embryonic stem cell research or feel that we, it's morally okay. But, but that's not always the case. And I gave over 50 lectures last year. That's one a week. And I was in the South, the Deep South. I, I gave talks to Catholic hospitals where the board was there with nuns and priests. I went to Germany, where this is very, a very different view. Um, and I'll say there are many, many people with very deeply held values who believe this is just very wrong. And, by the way, a fair number of scientists, cell biologists including. In fact, I, when I was in Zurich midway through the, the class, here I gave my talk and a fairly well-known cell biologist 
who works in Stuttgart came up and said, I loved your talk, but I am dead set against embryonic stem cell research. I tell all of my students that I'm morally against it, and I tell them that they should be too. Just wanted you to know that. <laughs> her. I don't know. I didn't ask what her religious background was. Yes, it was. I thought that was a very telling comment that she would actually. Yeah. So, yes. Do you go on those lecture tours in order to help people learn about stem cell research? I mean, is that one of the missions? Yeah. Well, the, the, the lectures are of many different types. So I, I go to give papers on my research. That's kind of boring because um, we're all talking to ourselves, right? Um, I also give the big public policy talks, and those are the fun ones for me. Um, and the more the merrier on those. And so I've gotten to the point where now I like the audiences that are going to give me a hard time. I didn't at the first. And then there was the book tour, which took me all over creation, uh, including my dad, by the way, is a... I'm just thinking about the fact that this is going to go onto iTunes. My dad is a conservative, uh, a, conser a very right-wing conservative person. I wouldn't say he's religious, but uh, we don't agree on a lot of stuff, including embryonic stem cell research. So Thanksgiving is very interesting at my house. <laughs> And I spent a lot, you know, a year writing this book. And he called me one day after it got published, and I was on, and you know, Fresh Air with Terry Gross, I think it was. He had heard me and said, "I want you to come and give um, a talk to my book club." I thought, "Oh, great! My father's book club. It's a bunch of old, cranky, white, conservative, retired professionals." And so I was flying from the East Coast and. And I gave the talk, and it was a chilly reception, for sure. It was a hard, hard audience. But, you know, my dad and I have now kind of reached a rapprochement, I think, with this. And he now believes that, you know, this policy is crazy and, and that we should be funding embryonic stem cell research. But he didn't always believe that. And I don't think I convinced him. Yeah, he did. And I think, I think the. And I think my, my dad is characteristic of many people who just ha simply haven't sat down and thought deeply about what we mean by terms like embryos. So an embryo to him was something with arms and legs. And I explained to him, there's no such thing in this vernacular. We, we aren't talking about, and that I think brought down a complete set of things that he had kind of propped up um, with this. And then I also explained the fact that scientists weren't just doing this for the heck of it, that there were some very good potential end result that could happen from this, and that we've done this throughout our history. And I think, you know, I, I think he did some other talking around. I don't think I was the one that actually swayed him.
So the question. The, Right. But there's only a certain holy society. Yeah. Right. So the, the question is, um, you know, regenerative medicine, if I can paraphrase you, um, could make some amazing things happen, including expanding our life uh, capacity to 130 years, just say. Um, and the, the question is, at, at, at what point do we simply, this molding over beholding that Sandal talks about, do we say, you know, maybe we shouldn't be striving towards these fantastic sort of things where we can live forever or simply have a whole supply of organs in our refrigerator at home and when we break one, we simply get the, and the costs associated with, with all of that. And so I'm going to pose the question back to you because I think it's a really good one. So what do you think? I mean, do you want to live to your 130 years old? I'm 50, and I'm already sick of myself, and I'm not sure I want to live until I'm 130. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, I'm just saying that do, would I, I mean, from a personal point of view, do you want to live until you're 150? If I have a good quality of life and I'm able to participate in a lot of activity and be mentally alert, so yes, so the comment is if you can live that long and still have say all your mental capacities and enjoy life and go to art museums and everything, absolutely yes. My, my grandmother lived well into her 90s and was basically super healthy until about four months before she passed. She said she would wake up every day and look at the ceiling and say, I'm still here. <laughs> <laughs> and, and her point was that so many of her friends were deceased and like the psychosocial network of relationships, she still had the family, we all lived in Palo Alto, but she was like, what am I supposed to be doing here? And she had been ready to go, even though she could go to plays and she would go to the senior center, but she was like... But if your grandmother it's, it's had all of her social, friends ticking along like the Energizer bunny... The issue is who's going to do who will make it. Who will make it, who won't, yes. Well, I think what's paradoxical about what you were saying is that if you look at societies that have all this advanced medicine, like we could keep people alive like crazy now that would have died. But if you look at those societies where there's education and good quality of life, the population is actually going down. And population is going down. You mean the numbers right, of people. The right. The, the birth rate, yeah, yes. Birth rate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's the people that have the, Western, or the good medicine and the quality of life and the education where the, the population is actually stabilizing and going down. Yeah, interesting, yeah. So I agree with both of you. It's, there's a baby box that often happens. So we're going to live for a living longer and there's not enough young people there's not enough young people to keep up with Social Security, but, but I don't know, if, I'm not really an optimist, but I have to say you have to consider those questions while this is developing. But I think we're so far off in getting there that I would hate for it to slow down the potential of what can come. And um, I don't know if that investment of time. I don't know, I can't equal it. Maybe well, we need to consider it while we're developing it. But. There's mechanisms that are already regulated. There's not an endless supply of research funds. And research is so expensive and so labor. And the cost of doing that, I mean, that's going to be the bigger The cost, I think that's the big one. Yeah, I mean, the health insurance is China. That's right. And so uh, one of the, the things that I try to say in my public talks is that much of stem cell research has been built on this promise of 
cures and therapies. And we're just at the very baby stages. This has only been going on, folks, nine years, 10 years. We had our 10th anniversary this year, embryonic stem cell research. And adult stem cells have been around for a while, but we have only really big, begun to understand them the last 15 years or so. I won't predict what we're going to be in 15 years on the medical side. I can't. I, I mean, I've done science, and I, it's just an impossible sort of thing. Do I will say, however, that I think the first big hits won't be therapies or cures. It's going to be something really simple, like discovering drugs. Remember those slides where I showed you disease in a dish? Now with the new direct reprogramming of cells, that all of a sudden enters the scientific scene as a huge tool, powerful, readily accessible in the hands of thousands of researchers. So we may paradoxically see the first stem cell cure coming not from stem cells, but from a drug that was screened in a group of stem cells that had diabetes, you know, as a genetic profile. And you know what? We can call that a win as far as I'm concerned. Yeah. Yeah. Well, not just companies. Uh, uh, here at Stanford, um, I, I look at all of the grants, and the grants are all focused on this kind of thing. These kind of basic, kind of applied. Some of them applied questions. So, yeah, it's all really good. Chris, in the research on aging. As I understand it, uh, they find that um, what they learn there not only increases the longevity, but the quality of life is very much improved. So, um, and, and one of the reasons that they're optimistic is the quality of life. So much right. So the point, the, it's a very good point, I think, that, and thank you for making it, uh, uh, that qu sometimes quality is much better than quantity, mm -hmm. and that if we can get to s simple improvements with drugs or uh, therapies that are simply allow us, for example, to be able to, to recognize our children when we're past 80, I mean, there's just a really simple kind of thing put in the stake in the sand saying dementia, Parkinson's or other sorts of diseases um, are the huge thing facing us, especially as our population curve tends to go out towards the later years. Let's focus on those. But the problem with those dementias are they're extremely complicated diseases and the cells involved are a little bit um, well, they're just finicky. You know, neural stem cells kind of, they traffic, they love to the move. They, um, we still haven't figured out exactly what they're gonna do when they go into people. Next slide. I wanna get through this because I wanna have a chance to take a short break and then finish the uh, podcast and then have a time to talk at the end. I'm gonna go through very briefly the biggest ethical scandal of our time in science in the last, say, 10, 15 years, and that's the South Koreans. You, you read the news, you knew that this was a big event in 2006 and 2000, 
uh, five, I'll bring you through the timeline of this thing that focused on nuclear transfer, that technique that shared its, its, uh, its history with Dolly the clone. Remember those slides. In 2001, a company called ACT couldn't get a, an embryo that had uh, been made by nuclear transfer to grow past two days. In 2003, China reported in a, in a publication, a group of scientists, that they had fused some human cells with rabbit eggs and gotten them to grow, but not very long. Uh, in 2004, this fellow from South Korea, Wang, got it to work. He put a, a, a skin nucleus into a human egg. He used 242 eggs to do this, and he got one of them to work. It was a spectacular result. And in fact, it was claimed as the discovery of the year. It made the pages of the top American journal Science. And I was at the talk in Boston where Wang gave his results, and it was a packed house. You could hear a pin drop. And instead of waving, you know, flames from lighters, they, all the reporters were waving their recorders. I mean, it was that kind of an event. It was spectacular. And he seemed to be the real deal. South Korea, out of nowhere, this guy. And then he said he could do it even better. A year later, he said, I have the first patient-specific lines, which means that I took a cell from a, a person with a disease, a skin cell, took that nucleus, inserted it into an egg, and I got a line, an embryonic stem cell line, for that person. So now the realization of these patient-specific, custom-made lines for cells for anything that ail you came true, and he got it to work even better. The efficiencies were orders of magnitude better. Which addressed some concerns that we were using too many human eggs to get to too little of a result. Well, I'll give you the punchline for these two things. He lied. He lied about his research. He fabricated his data. Um, he hadn't done anything he claimed. And on top of it, he unethically obtained the eggs from women in his laboratory. So we'll fast forward to 2007. Just a few months ago, researchers in Oregon figured out how they could get a cloned monkey line. So what they did was they did the same experiment that Wang claimed to do only in primates and in, in monkeys and got a line to grow using that nuclear transfer method. Then, just a few weeks ago, if you've been uh, watching the news, a company in La Jolla said that they got a blastocyst by using the technique. They didn't get a line, they just got it to grow to the blastocyst stage. So kind of up there 2001, only maybe a little bit, a little bit later. So here's the kind of the brief history of nuclear transfer in human cells. Did you have a question? Did Wang actually attempt it, or did they just lie about all of the research? Uh, no one really knows whether Wang attempted this and failed. My, you know, I can, I can wave my hands about what I think happened. And what I think happened is that he did try, try very hard. He's an animal cloner, not a human cell guy. He's done animal clones for most of his career and published them. And that's verifiable from what we can tell. My feeling is, is that he just 
simply could not get it to work and got so frustrated he lied about it. And were the women in his lab coerced? Is it known that they, they were in fact donors? And that they I'll were get to that. Uh, well, I mean, as soon as, <laughs> as soon as the question is no one could replicate what he published, uh, probably not, but I think the big thing was is that once the fraud became clear that he had simply lied about the data, it was very um, uh, apparent that the, that the technique was going to be just not so slam dunk as, as Wu Suk Wong had said. So he, this is how he unraveled, this thing unraveled. He reportedly obtained eggs from his own co-workers, so that's a definite conflict of interest and a violation of most ethical norms um, in the, uh, across the world. Science, um, finally, the magazine, the journal reported lack of informed consent so that the women did not actually sign the consent that would, that would um, explain what the IVF procedure was in terms of its risks uh, to them. There were uh, denials by him and his team that he knew about where the eggs were coming from. There was a big internet uh, sort of uh, effort that was going on and that's actually the thing that brought him down. It was a bunch of postdoctoral fellows in China said, wait a minute, something doesn't look right about these pictures. He was claiming he had all these pictures of these lines and they said, look, if you reverse these pictures and superimpose them on, they're the same. So he had basically taken mirror images of the pictures and published them in his research, saying that he had many lines. It was a crude but effective, I mean, it got into the, one of the world's best journals, right? Uh, American collaborator Gerald Shatton in Pittsburgh withdrew his name from the first publication. Wang says, I've been framed. The university where he worked started to investigate. Then the fraud became very clear, uh, li much later actually, they found that the line was made simply from an IVF egg and that egg uh, actually had uh, undergone parthenogenesis, it had gone kind of spontaneous division, so it actually wasn't fertilized and he had a first, although he didn't know it or wasn't going to tell anybody at the time, that was what we believe is the first case of an embryonic stem cell line made from a parthenote from an egg that wasn't fertilized. So the egg just started to divide on its own. So it was a pretty amazing result. He could have gotten a science publication on that alone if he had been truthful about it, right? Um, only two out of the 11 lines he claimed in the later paper were real and they both came from IVF eggs. So it was James Thompson's experiment. That's basically what he did in this uh, particular thing. Not hundreds of eggs used, folks thousands of eggs. After the university went back into the research notebooks, they uncovered 2,600 or 2,061 eggs were used over this three-year period of experiments. That's a tremendous amount of eggs, most of them coming from women that consented or didn't consent, but uh, donated, gave the eggs over and over again, multiple times, multiple rounds of IVF, which is a very invasive procedure. Um, Two out of the 129 women that donated were hospitalized. That's a little bit higher than the norm that, uh, of adverse events in, um, in the procedure. Half of the donors were paid to donate the eggs. Uh, Wang, in a tearful admission in front of national TV in South Korea, admitted that he lied. He also misappropriated funds. He 
he had slipped money to American collaborators at meetings up to $10,000 in envelopes. Um, the one thing that he had published in a competing journal called Nature was a clone dog. It was called Snuppy. And after everybody went back and looked at the results and the dog and did the test, that was real. So what he had done was he continued his predominance as an animal cloner, but simply did not and could not get the human lines to work. So I, I use this in a case study in my class because this is, you, can't, you couldn't write it better than this for how ethics has influenced every facet of this particular area of science. There was research fraud, lying about the data. There was implications for peer review. In other words, our, our journals are all set up on honesty that you know, someone isn't going to lie, right? You can, you can be an artful liar in your, in your results. And if you're really good at it, you can pass the experts. And that's what happened to, to Wang. He was doing such front-edge research that even the experts weren't expert enough to know that he was fabricating the data, although you could argue that if they had looked closely at some of the gene signatures in the pictures, they could have figured it out. There was a lot of uh, talk about research assembly lines. That second paper, I think, had 26 authors on it, 26 authors working on this project, which means he had this at industrial scale. I have a, a young graduate student who's now at Penn um, who came to me as a high school senior. She had spent a whole year training she's South Korean, as a high school project in his lab. And he put her in a cow cloning facility and she did hundreds and hundreds of these procedures. I mean, here, here I was working with this, this uh, very smart young lady and she was an expert cloner, you know, in my own lab, working with the infamous Huang himself. Um, anyway, there was a big, a big uh, to-do about that. There were complex relationships between donors, clinicians, and, and researchers, not separating them, because to really have these separated, there should be Chinese walls uh, among them, or maybe South Korean walls. Um, government science relations. Wang was funded at tremendous levels. Uh, hundreds, or fi 50, I think, $50 million for one set of research projects. This put him in a stratospheric level of of influence within South Korea, a very small country with a very small research budget. In fact, I met Wang twice, um, and once uh, he was interested in putting a stem cell bank in the Bay Area and asked to meet me and a couple of others, and we went to the airport and met him as he came off his 747 in the most beautiful suit I'd ever seen in my life with a retinue of five or six of his top scientists, came off the plane. Uh, another group with him followed, so there were about 20 of us in the San Francisco International Terminal. And then the common folks came off of the South Korean uh, jet. He had, by the way, lifetime travel, first class, on anywhere he wanted on any South Korean jet. And the common folks came out, recognized him immediately, and it was like a rock star. I felt like I was at American Idol. I mean, people would come up and offer things to him as gifts, signatures, uh, autographs, all the rest. And of course, my time with him was completely wasted because he spent all his time with his worshipers. It was a really amazing afternoon. There were some possible coercive things going on with the 
the junior researchers, there was some interesting discussion about East versus West. When this broke, the South Korea said, Who, who's America to tell us what our ethics ought to be? And there was a very much attention about the Western way of doing research being kind of forced upon a nation's own sovereign uh, willingness to have their own normative view of, of ethics. So here are the lessons, and this is what we discuss in our classes. One is that public reviews of human embryonic stem cell protocols might help. It certainly it helps when we're doing the reviews inside of the Stanford um, Review Committee. There were a lot of misunderstandings uh, among, among the authors. Um, there was a non-contributing government official listed as an author. That person probably never set the, themselves their foot in the lab. They probably didn't even know what their research was. So making sure that the people listed on the publication are actually doing the research might help. Tough thing to kind of find out, but something is a possible solution. Uh, the American contributor was listed as a senior author. Now the reason that uh, Wu Suk Wong put Jerry Shatton on the paper was because he was South Korean, didn't speak English very well, and needed someone to communicate the paper to the top journal. Shatton was a well-known, still is a well-known uh, um, scientist, and so that was the conduit that came from Dr. Shatton, and Shatton said thumbs up to the research, then that was kind of a seal of approval, and of course Jerry Shatton didn't really know very much about the research and was reprimanded by Pittsburgh for his involvement in the Wang case. This is a good example of how science moves faster than the ethics. I mean, while all this was going on, there were a lot of ethicists and policy people saying, go South Korea. We can't do it here in the United States. This is good. So, go figure. Um, I already mentioned the, the uh, funding and uh, some other things that might help would be de-identifying the eggs, cells, and embryos hinders the ability to validate the, the, the results, um, better informed consent, the risks of oocyte uh, donation wasn't explained to the women, and then of course there were lessons, a lack of national standards. So my last two slides here, I know you guys are getting a little bleary-eyed on me, but we're almost done. I thought I'd give you a, a peek forward at what the next big issues for ethics and law and policy will be. What I believe is out, and I hate to say this, but the moral status of the embryo, what we've just spent the last um, you know, 40 minutes talking about, I think is winding down. And I think the reason this is winding down in ethics is because we have agreed to disagree. And that these are positions that are non-reconcilable for the most part. And I th I'm saying from the points of view from those conservatives who believe, who believe an embryo is a person and that's a human life and we should protect it at all costs. It's very, very hard to move someone off that dime. And it's very hard, I think, for you know, people on the other side to understand exactly that kind of uh, thinking too. So this is, I think, a, a, a situation, an argument that doesn't have a, an easy uh, solution to it. The patent controversies which I didn't really talk about too much in the, in, in the class, uh, although they're very important, I think are going to go away if 
you um, noticed today, actually yesterday, all of James Thompson's patents were upheld. So they were originally challenged and they were found invalid by the U.S. Patent Office. And, to, and today or yesterday, the U.S. Patent Office said, never mind, we think they're all valid. So if you're interested uh, in that, I've got a paper coming out in Nature Biotechnology next week or the week after that discusses what was behind the U.S. Patent Office's thinking on this. Yes, James Thompson is from Wisconsin, the guy who discovered the embryonic stem cells. Now we can say, I think, from a patent perspective that the discovery is his. The presidential uh, restrictions, I put a question mark here. George Bush is moving out. We've got three candidates facing uh, the election. We've got um, Barack Obama, Senator Clinton, and John McCain. They've all said that they would loosen the restrictions on stem cell research. However, John McCain this week has started to move back towards the right, saying, I'm not so sure I got to think about this. So I, I just put this out here to say it's not a done deal that if a liberal or someone who's sympathetic to embryonic stem cell research is in the president's office, that we will finally get the restrictions on the funding lifted. In fact, uh, President Clinton, who you might say was one of the most sympathetic people to embryonic stem cell research, himself backtracked halfway through one of his terms on this. When he could have lifted um, uh, funding restrictions, he did because he got a bunch of letters from a religious conservative. So it doesn't guarantee anything. The chimeras we talked about in the beginning, uh, first class when we did our little case studies, I think this is probably something that's not going to get a lot of attention. Here are the big ones. The states are a mess. I explained what happens when we consider getting embryos or passing lines back and forth between restrictive and permissive states. There, the patent controversies across countries are enormous. The economic development is very important. Who's going to get the first therapies and when? Is it going to be Singapore that develops it? What will happen for patients like Richard Chin if we do have a bona fide therapy that gets taken care of and funded and discovered and tested in Singapore? It might come to the United States. Will the price reflect that global torturous route that the technology had to take? Would it have been a much more efficient and much more morally uh, permissible thing to have all of that go on here where we could test it in our own patients, in our own Ameri under you know, American regulation and, and American people who are suffering? Um, the international travel, I think, will become a bigger thing. I'm trying to take uh, medical tourism out of my vocabulary. I think it's an unfair term to people like Richard, and I, I keep getting called on it in talks. So this is uh, what I'm going to say from now on, and that's that treatments and cures uh, for those who need it is a big issue. Banking, stem cell banking, it's a big thing to think about. How many of you heard of the embryonic stem cell bank in San Francisco? Right? So there's a company in San Francisco that will take your unused embryos and you can donate it. You've got choices. You can donate them to research. You can put them in the freezer. You can give them to a couple who needs them. Or you can send them to this company in San Francisco and they'll make a line out of it. And they'll keep it in a freezer for you. So that brings up some really interesting and in my view some troubling 
ethical issues. Now, banking on somatic cells isn't as controversial. Cord blood, not a big deal. What you say you can do with cord blood, big deal. Right? So cord blood, okay right now for cancers and children and some anemias and other diseases. Uh, not clear whether cord blood is going to do the thing that Richard went to China for. Um, phase one clinical trials is big because it's here, it's now, we're considering it. It's at Stanford, uh, or will be, I'm, I'm, uh, maybe at Stanford rather. Um, our phase one clinical trials, um, I've talked about the Batten's disease trials, they've already started. The Geron company trials for spinal injury are anticipated to start this year. Then the ones here at Stanford, there are hematopoietic stem cells from the bone marrow into heart. There have been trials not here, but at other places where they're putting these cells into the brain and for other vascular problems. We need, as a scientific and research enterprise, to evaluate the risk before putting these trials into people. And it's a very difficult thing to do. How do you evaluate a rat? You say, well, this rat is running around the cage now because it seems to be cured of this spinal injury. Is a rat equal to a person who's just fallen off a boat and has a C5? And, and when do we, have, as, a, as a community and as a bunch of experts, feel confident that we'll say go for this so that that person, when we put those cells into their spinal cord, won't get a tumor and have a lifetime of referred pain. And some of these questions are simply unknowable. I'm not saying that any kind of deliberation might come up with a yes or a no. I'm just saying that these are the things that need to be discussed. Choosing the right patient population is a big one too. You choose children, dying children, Batten's disease. Do you instead go after chronic disease? Um, should we be focusing on first in adults for lysosomal storage disorders, willing patients who understand what's happening to them who can say, I agree, I consent to this trial, and then go to children after we've, after we've proven the concept in adults? Or, in the case of Batten disease, do you just go, let's go. They're gonna die, it's a horrible thing, let's, let's try it, that's what science is for. Assuming that everybody's giving the right consent, right? So these are big questions for ethics. The medical treatments offshore are, are going to be big. And then just the issues that we all discussed in class that afternoon, how we decide whether or not to let an embryonic stem cell research project go forward. Yes? So the question is, what about the capital markets, in, in particular venture capital? Um, the, the answer to that is that venture capital is not there yet. They don't believe this is um, worth their risk, and they're probably the most willing to take risks, big risks. So that gives you an idea of how, where along the spectrum of having uh, these be turned into products this is in terms of the venture capital groups. Now some of them, have. I mean, there are a whole number of companies out there uh, that are venture-backed. But um, I know of now two funds that are now focusing only on regenerative medicine. They're both here in the Bay Area, one on Sand Hill Road. I've talked to them many times. Um, and uh, I think 
they're finding it difficult to raise money. And the, the reason I think it's difficult to raise money is that investors just aren't clear about whether or not some of these therapies are going to yield a result in the time frames that they, they want. Yeah. Tell you what, before I get to that question, why don't we stop the lecture here so our friend can take off? Okay? And uh, I'll get to this last slide. And um, so thank you very much. I think we're done. We're done before that last. We're done with the podcast. Yeah. I can continue going. Well, can you excise all this nonsense I just talked about? <laughs> Okay, all right. So we'll, we'll keep going here. So uh, go ahead. I just didn't want to keep him too long here. So go ahead. What was your question again? Well, I forgot. Is there um, a concern that there's enough oversight that once um, nuclear transfer works in humans, that somebody will actually keep going and clone the human rather than making a clone? Yeah, so the question is, is there worry that, um, that a person could use the cloning technique for deriving lines to actually uh, make a baby. So one cloning is cellular cloning or nuclear transfer, the other would be reproductive cloning, as it's termed. Yeah, there's a worry that that would happen, but let me explain the kind of um, process that would go on to do that, right? So you'd need a vast conspiracy of people You'd need IVF physicians, you'd need basic scientists, you'd need willing women and parents, you would need um, you know, the proper genetic tests and people who are doing genetic testing to make sure you would be, you'd be doing all of this underground. So, I mean, I just find it very hard to imagine something as spectacular as that happening with all the checks and balances we have at all of those stages. Not to say that it couldn't happen, I think it could. And I think during our history of science, we've always had some pretty amazing bad things. But what about in a different part of the world? Uh, it could happen in another part of the world, but the, the, I think the, the question is, do, does the, do other parts of the world have the technological capability to carry that out? I don't know. Seems relatively reviled by the scientific community around the world. It's not like well, not just by the scientific community. It's it's I think a, a, human, a universe. The the, yeah. uni the universal human feeling about this is that we should not, ought not, must not do it, and that cloning is you can imagine it as the worst form of human experimentation. Right? I mean, animal clones are full of problems. Didn't Dolly the sheep? It had all the age-related illnesses of its mother, is that right? Well, no, not exactly. Dolly, Dolly had illnesses that were, that were related to, um, to what's called imp failures to, uh, of erasure of imprinting. So she had some genetic problems, um, but she didn't die necessarily really early. She died in late middle age, uh, and she was she was a, a big sheep, and, and that's large offspring syndrome is, a, is an effect of that. And also large offspring syndrome, by the way, is something that appears in humans too, in IVF clinics. So it's, 
the reason I say this is something that we shouldn't do is because, I mean, this is just a blunt force sort of thing. You're sticking a bunch of nucleus, you're sticking a nucleus and a bunch of DNA in an egg, and then you're asking that egg to reset all of those genes back to its embryonic origins. It's like, this is like a huge task for an egg. The chemistry in that must be just mind-blowing. And so to say that we would, you know, risk a birth by simply doing that procedure to get a baby is absolutely wrong on so many, so many levels. Yes, that was this last result. What, what, why would that, what, what prevented that? You know, I haven't read the paper, so I can't tell you. But they had the potential there. I don't know. But the parthenogenesis is interesting because you don't need an embryo then, you just need the egg, right? Yes. So, so you don't the, need to get into this notion of an ensouled yes. potential. It's, it is Although some might argue that it's enough of a half a human whatever that you don't want to mess with. But yeah, you're right. Parthenogenesis gets around some of the moral issues, but parthenotes are kind of messed up anyway. Um, you know, they're uh, XX. So if you're doing parthenotes for specific therapies for men, we're out of luck, guys. Because um, we don't have a genetic match. Okay, so I wrote this about a year ago or so, and um, I, I don't mean to be hard on our president. Oh, but in this article, I was a little bit tough on him, and, and uh, it, it uh, has run, it has a life of its own. It's all over the inter internet. It just, it just appeared in a Polish newspaper called Rationalisa, I think, and got some, some interesting uh, comments. But I, 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 I used a kind of rhetorical trick, and I'll give it to you just to kind of think about, and that's that um, imagine... George Bush or any person 20 years from now, they're in their 50s or 60s now, and now 20 years from now they're elderly, and they become sick, and seriously sick, where they may die. And let's say that all of these things we've talked about on the policy and law front have come to pass had come to pass. We had a law that would imprison scientists. We had a law on the books that was voted on that would put uh, patients and caregivers in jail. And that, let's say, other countries had picked up the slack, got funding, and a cure for this disease, this imaginary disease 20 years from now, had been found in, say, developed in Singapore and then imported to the UK, where in the UK and Britain this is all okay. They do research and plan for therapies um, without the controversies we have here in the United States. So given that future scenario, let's say George Bush is that sick person in 2016, I think, on August 1st, the, the, the anniversary of his proclamation from his ranch in Texas in 2001. <laughs> and he is flown to the UK for this treatment by his family on a plane. 
and that it's a nuclear transfer therapy. In other words, Jenna, his daughter, donates the egg, or perhaps maybe a cell. You can work it a number of ways. And that he gets a specially matched line of cells that's going to cure his disease. I think in this article, it's a um, neurological disease that I give him. And that he goes to King's College and gets better. And that he's greeted at the airport by an elderly Tony Blair. And the question then for us, or for Congress, is now that this is illegal, and we voted it in, do we give our former president a pardon and let him come back? Or is he exiled in Britain for the rest of his, his, his life to stay in a dreary part of London? I think he's going to Iraq. Now, I love London. <laughs> so from the expat in the audience, they want no part of him. He'll end up in Africa somewhere. But, I mean, the, this is actually an argument that was used in the halls of Congress, not only here in the United States, but in, in one of my favorite countries, Australia, where a good friend of mine was, uh, is the... Uh, currently she's about to retire, she's the majority whip, her name is Kay Patterson. And, and Senator Patterson, who is also a PhD, she was the former Minister of Health of Australia, if I've got the term right, when she passed a very important bill just a year ago that would allow nuclear transfer in Australia, that was outlawed until she got her teeth into it. She worked her fellow senators by taking them to lunch and proposing this. She didn't get it from me. She got it from her own brain. But she said, suppose you're old and you're faced with the only cure that you have for your family that will give you another 15 years or 10 years with your family and that that cure came from embryonic stem cells. Would you take it? And she said that to every person who was planning to vote against her. This was a very tight vote, by the way when it first came up. And they all said to Kay, yes, I would take it. And then she said, how can you not vote for something now that would deny you a potential cure in the future? It's kind of like the potentiality argument, you know? And they looked at her and had no answer. It's a really powerful sort of thing to use. And she swayed enough votes, this was, totally against her. When she started this, it was, I think there are a hundred votes in the Australian Senate, um, and it was 40-60 against. So she was on the 40 side. It was her bill, by the way. She wrote it. And when it passed, it was 51-49. Wow. <laughs> And you don't need a majority in the Australian Senate to pass. It's one vote. And Did she take a lecture tour in this country? She's been here. And in fact, she will be here in September. It'll be her farewell tour. She'll be at the law school. Um, law school. If you send me an email in about a month, well, actually, no. Send it clear, uh, closer to September, and I'll, I'll give you that. She's a wonderful speaker, by the way. But that just goes to show, you know, how, how this thing gets kind of hijacked by politics. She was very successful at putting that together.
we need a couple of those here, don't we? Well, we have a couple. Well, I think it's interesting. We do. Orrin Hatch is one. With Clinton and Donna Shalala, he ends up getting pressures from the religious right, so he backtracks on his decision, right? Yes. Why don't we have an organized sort of left view for progressing this and doing the same thing to either this administration or future administrations? I don't understand the lack of political action. Yeah. That. Well, that's a good, a good point. I think the, the conservatives, according to a conservative bioethicist I know, seized the high ground really early on this issue. And they got it, they got the message, you know, how they, you're on message, on point. They got the message about this embryo killing, human life, uh, abortion. They got all this stuff tied together in a very coherent, maybe not logically coherent, but in compelling. terms of coherent, compelling argument at the very beginning of the Bush presidency. And everyone else, I mean, can you imagine scientists organizing over anything? They can't get out of bed in the morning. So. So you can't imagine that the, the scientists were ineffectual. They were, going, they were going to Washington and then yelling at people, which was wonderful tactics. <laughs> and then, then the, but the patient advocates were the only ones who really got this, understood the political process, because you know, th this, is their, this is how they, you know, it started with AIDS and other places, this is how they get stuff done. But there weren't enough of them and they weren't, um, I just don't think that early on they were listened to. Now, in 2004, when all of these bills came up that would put people in jail, I mean, this was just, this, I, th I thought I was living on the moon. And, but it was the patient advocates who saw this, and they went in, there's this organization called CAMR, another great place to go on the web, C-A-M-R. It is a meta-patient uh, advocacy organization that has all the big ones, juvenile diabetes, the spinal cord injury, the Parkinson's network, all of these groups are under camera and they are led by a very smart individual, Michael Werner, and they went and they, they did the, the messaging one better in the years 2005-2006. And if you look at the votes in the House and Senate on these very controversial bills, the votes start to go the other way. And I argued in an editorial in um, San Jose Mercury News that the, the difference between the 2004 Senate vote and the vote that finally had to be vetoed by Bush was due to the patient advocates, not the scientists, not the pundits, not the people like me going around the country giving these talks, but rather the people who would bring, you know, it's a heart string sort of story, but who would bring a person in a wheelchair and sit them in the senator's office and say, okay, here's, and they bring a scientist in with them, by the way. Usually it was a tandem sort of thing. And Werner calls it water torture. He said that's the only way we did it, is we would bring him in, then when we bring him in again, we'd ask for another, we'd talk to the staffers, we'd talk, we'd intercept them in the hallway and we'd use different strategies if the person was scientifically inclined we'd bring an egghead in if the person was more emotionally inclined we'd bring a, a small child in but we tailored each thing for each vote and they almost got it they were four votes shy 
well, actually two votes shy, I think, in the Senate for overriding the veto, but 50 votes shy in the House. 